welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Arbitral Insights. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Chair of our International Arbitration Practice at Reed Smith. As many of you know, 2023 marks the centenary of the ICC and International Court of Arbitration and its century-long commitment to providing access to justice and the rule of law for everyone, every day and everywhere. The ICC Court is making this centenary with a series of events and initiatives, including collaborating with best-in-class organisations and companies to create innovative and impactful thought leadership campaigns, and that will be throughout 2023. And as part of these centenary um, celebrations, Claudia Salomon, the president of the ICC Court, has very kindly agreed to be our guest on Arbitral Insights for this, our 100th episode. Not quite as impressive as the 100 years that the ICC Court has been in existence, but our own milestone nonetheless, and one that we are celebrating together with our 20,000 downloads to date. Claudia, thank you very much indeed for joining us again in what must be an incredibly busy and important year for you as well as um, the ICC Court. We really are thrilled to have you with us. Perhaps if we start with a brief explanation about the role of the ICC Court in the arbitral process, I mean, what does that role involve? Well, thank you so much, Peter, for having me as part of the celebration of the ICC Court Centenary, and I'm really thrilled to be part of your own celebration of the 100th episode. That is a great milestone, and really, congratulations. So what does the role of the court involve? It definitely involves a lot of travel. But I really think about my role in three key buckets. The first, and of course the most important, is assuring that the work of the court itself in our case management, our scrutiny of awards, and everything we do from the moment a case is filed until an award is issued is at the highest quality. The second kind of bucket I would describe is, in essence, the chief ambassador of the ICC court. And that is really an element of the travel communicating what I hope is uh, the value proposition and connecting with and among the business community and the legal and arbitration community. And the third bucket I would describe as really focused on the strategy and then the implementation of the strategy to assure that the ICC court and ICC's dispute resolution services more broadly are positioned for the future. You became ICC court president on the 1st of July 2021, so you're now 20 months into the role. What have you been most proud of achieving so far? Well, certainly I would say I'm most proud when I hear in-house counsel saying that they really feel that their 
perspectives are being heard. We've, of course, been focused on assuring that we meet the needs of the parties around the world throughout our entire history. But I think we have taken some very concrete steps and really tried to focus on our messaging around assuring that in-house counsel know that they can be engaged in the arbitration process, and we want to have an active engagement with them to assure that their uh, perspectives are heard. So one of the things that's really wonderful at the ICC Commission on Arbitration and ADR is we now have 120 in-house council members of the commission. No, that's fabulous. And, and being a delegate for France to that commission and, and being at a number of events, it's always great to have that exchange with in-house counsel. really is very fruitful. Um, anything that has surprised you about the ICC court since taking on the role? Well, I have to say every time I chair a court session, I am so impressed with the court members in terms of their commitment and focus on the work of the court itself in an incredibly international way. So maybe that's not, shouldn't be surprising because I served on the court for six years, first as the US court member and then as vice president of the court before taking this role. But seeing it from this new perspective when I know everyone is doing this on a voluntary basis at the court in order to really improve the process for the sake of the process itself, assuring that there really is a quality arbitration process, that the parties have access to justice, rule of law. That's the incredible strength of the institution. And of course, you made history by being the court's first female president, an appointment held by many as confirmation of the ICC's commitment to addressing long-standing issues relating to gender balance in arbitration. Um, and I know that you said that you see diversity and inclusion as core, existential and essential to the work of the ICC court and the ICC itself uh, to ensure that dispute resolution services that you provide reflect the needs of the global business community um, and also being essential to maintaining the very legitimacy of international arbitration. I know that diversity, equity and inclusion have also been specifically included in the ICC Court Centenary Declaration. So, I mean, could you perhaps just talk a little bit about some of the initiatives that the ICC Court is working on in this area? Absolutely. And I feel that every time I speak about diversity and inclusion, it's important that I highlight the fact that we're doing this work on the um, shoulders of others and most significantly from my predecessor, Alexi Moore, who I just want to always emphasize had the audacity in 2018 to insist on gender parity of the ICC court itself. And we can see the reverberations of that very important decision, uh, because now the ICC court itself is more women than men, and of course, uh, hailing from 120 different countries. So on those shoulders, we have been focused on diversity broadly defined, and I think that's really important. 
Of course, the work with regard to gender diversity is not done, but it is important for us to be thinking about diversity broadly defined. So in this regard, uh, when we issued the note to national committees on proposals of arbitrators, because that's part of our process, we included diversity broadly defined as a factor the national committee should consider when making proposals to the court for potential arbitrators. We replicated that language in our letters to parties and co-arbitrators when they are also nominating arbitrators. Because what we know statistically with regard to gender diversity is when arbitrators are appointed by the court, there is much more gender diversity than the nominations coming from the parties themselves or from co-arbitrators when uh, nominating the president of the tribunal, typically with input from the parties. So is our letter asking them or urging the parties to consider diversity going to be the end all of or the, the key to increasing diversity? I would say it's an additional important step. And we are really urging in-house counsel themselves to say if uh, if they are getting lists from their outside counsel that is not diverse uh, to urge and require their outside counsel to be focused on this issue. Lastly, I would just mention two additional initiatives. Uh, Last year in 2022, we received the GAR award for two of the initiatives we launched. One is, at that point, the announcement of the Task Force on Disability Inclusion and Arbitration, and most recently at the last commission meeting, the uh, guide on disability inclusion uh, was approved by the commission, and we expect that to be coming out in the coming months. And that Uh, has already shifted the conversation on disability inclusion, I think it's going to have incredible impact. And lastly, we launched the LGBT plus network within the ICC court to make sure that people felt within the court that they could be their authentic selves. And the goal is to build on that network again uh, in the near term for the broader arbitration and ADR community. Well, fantastic initiatives. And and what is the biggest change you would like to see arbitration users, and that's both practitioners and their clients, make in order to help achieve better diversity and inclusion in arbitration? I think what we have to see is the demand from in-house counsel, from the parties themselves, that the arbitrators reflect the diversity of the global business community and the in-house counsel, uh, which themselves are frequently more diverse than outside counsel. Um, That's really where we're going to have to see a significant shift. And another of the ICC's goals um, stated in the Centenary Declaration is to drive thought leadership in dispute prevention and resolution through innovative services. Um, Where do you see the ICC court as having a particular role to play in delivering innovation? And what areas in particular are you focusing on at present? Well, just to take a moment to reflect on our history as we are doing as part of our centenary, 
And what we did in the declaration itself is say, you know, over the last hundred years, ICC has indeed played a key role in the development of international arbitration, but assuring that arbitration is the preferred method for resolving cross-border disputes. And one aspect of our history that your listeners may not know is the key role that ICC played actually in the New York Convention, the Convention on the Promotion uh, enforcement and recognition, sorry, of uh, arbitral awards in 1958. ICC actually tr- prepared the first draft that ultimately became primarily the text of the treaty and utilized its extensive network to encourage countries to sign and ratify the convention. And now we have seen more than 170 countries around the world uh, as signatories to the New York Convention. So that's kind of a key element of our past. Now, as we think about the future, I think we have so many elements of innovation uh, in dispute resolution services. At the most pressing aspect is to assure that as parties are focused on actual prevention and resolution, we are assuring that the parties have all of the tools in their toolbox available and top of mind and readily accessible to try to reach a resolution of their dispute. So we don't want parties to just be thinking about arbitration versus litigation and then be on an express train to the final award if they haven't previously been able to resolve their dispute. There may be important ADR tools to use before an arbitration is filed, but we want to assure that the parties have um, access to and the outside counsel arbitrators are also helping facilitate this potential resolution even once an arbitration has filed. Uh, This could be having negotiation windows in a procedural timetable. This could be be through having more frequent case management conferences with a focus on issues to be decided or other techniques that may be used. Okay. And I mean, what role is there for artificial intelligence in arbitration proceedings? It's certainly top of mind. And the real question is going to be, how quickly is it going to change dispute resolution and in what way? But do I have any doubt that it is going to change? No, I am confident that artificial intelligence is going to change the way we do almost everything and certainly the way in which disputes are resolved. So ultimately the issue is in a world in which There is so much delay in court proceedings around the world. Are parties going to be willing to have a dispute resolution process that may be less than perfect, but nonetheless is quick? What is going to be the tolerance for that trade-off when we also say, that a dispute resolution process that is lacking in due process 
is no dispute resolution process at all, or in other words, lacks legitimacy. That's the very, very important question we have to uh, grapple with and quickly. And uh, will the ICC set up in the metaverse anytime soon? I think we're examining that issue. And the question is, what is the role for the institution in this context? But we are absolutely looking at that. Okay, so watch this space. Um, Like Reed Smith, I mean, the ICC and the ICC court has put clients um, at the heart of its business strategy. And you said in 2021 that a priority for your term as president is getting the parties more engaged in the arbitral process, and that includes at C-suite level, and also communicating clearly how the ICC can help resolve disputes at all levels. And that's through innovations like the ICC International Centre for ADR and also the ICC um, expedited arbitration process. I mean, could you expand on that a little and any other ways in which you are planning to drive client engagement and what you think success will look like? Thank you so much for highlighting this point. We talk about the parties that utilize ICC's dispute resolution services as users of arbitration services or users of ADR services. And I think I have a bit of a allergic reaction to that terminology because I come to this role with more than 25 years uh, experience uh, working in large law firms. And I am confident that at Reed Smith, for example, you don't refer to the companies that you do work for as users of Reed Smith services, right? I mean, that, that's right. You have clients. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> you don't have users. <laughs> it's and the at Reed Smith, I am confident that in the focus on client relationships, it really is about the relationship, trying to be that trusted advisor. And for ICC, we have the focus as well, that same focus, which is assuring that we are building a relationship with the global business community, that the business community, and this, of course, includes states that are also engaged in commercial matters, that they see ICC as focused on responding to and meeting their needs. Um, And that really, to me, is one of the key differentiators of the ICC Secretariat, which is, I believe the service is second to none. I really believe that it is service focused on being accessible, being knowledgeable, and really having client centricity as the focus on everything we do. But for me, what does it look like? What would success look like? And that I'm characterizing as transparency 2.0. This is in essence, for me, success is where anyone utilizing our services has easy understanding of the process itself. And that They can read on our website, they can read our rules and really have accessible understanding of the services that we provide and the process itself. There's a a lot of discussion um, these days about um, transparency 
And, and how do you balance transparency in arbitration with confidentiality in the modern arbitral process? It's a big question. I don't actually see confidentiality and transparency as inconsistent in any way. Those to me are not two sides of the coin because there is no question in my mind that the party's expectations on confidentiality are to be respected. And indeed, in the announcement uh, and our publication of ICC arbitral awards, those awards are only published if the parties consent to the publication, and they are only published in an anonymized version. Our focus on transparency has really been transparency of the process. In other words, now we provide, for example, reasons for our decisions on certain administrative matters, including challenges. No longer would parties receive a one-line letter that says, you know, challenge of arbitrator X is denied. But if one of the parties wants to have reasons and they make that request before the decision is made, then while we have discretion as to whether we would do so, it's hard to imagine reasons when we wouldn't. And so that's transparency of the process itself. Another of the ICC Court's centenary declaration goals is increasing the global reach of arbitration and ADR. Are there any particular geographical or sectoral areas that you are focusing on? And, and you know, how do you plan to, to actually do this? One of the things I have found so amazing uh, as I've been digging into statistics is, you know, we have parties from almost 150 different countries utilizing ICC services. We have arbitrators from 100 different countries. And then this is an important piece for me. We have ICC arbitrations seated in 120 different cities around the world. So maybe, you know, and I'll get to your specific question, but as we talk about kind of myths we need to debunk about arbitration and ICC arbitration specifically is there is no need to uh, always come to Paris or London or Singapore for ICC arbitration, of course. What we see is arbitrations, ICC arbitrations, literally seated everywhere in the world. Now, when we look at the geographic focus of the parties and the arbitrators, we certainly see a strong historic predominance of European parties and North American parties. But most significantly is the number two nationality of parties utilizing ICC arbitration last year is Brazil. We also see India and China now uh, really in the top nationalities. And so our focus is in particular on Africa. My predecessor, Alexi Moore, four years ago created the Africa Commission. We have then reconstituted that a year ago with a focus on not just sub-Saharan Africa, but the entire continent. And there, uh, and we now have a regional director for Africa and amazing initiatives really focused on connecting with the business community, training and capacity building 
in Africa. We're also very focused on China, of course. Uh, there was the Belt and Road Commission that was created. We also reconstituted that last year with a real focus on Chinese companies, state-owned enterprises, as well as private companies, uh, as well as other uh, Chinese practitioners and arbitrators with a real focus on the Chinese market. India, of course, is very uh, key. And we have now actually just hired a deputy regional director who's going to be actually based in Delhi and a deputy regional director who's based in Indonesia with a focus on Indonesia and ASEAN. So Latin America, I would say, is a place where when you read the uh, Queen Mary report, 80% uh, preference for ICC arbitration, that's been built over the last couple of decades, we have to continue to make sure that we have strong connections with that community. But we really see the focus in Asia and Africa as core growth areas. Your time is precious, I know. So I'll come to a final question, which is, I mean, what do you see, Claudia, as being the biggest challenges to the continued ascendance of international arbitration as a dispute resolution method of choice now for international businesses? I believe that there is a, the foundational reasons why international arbitration is the preferred method for resolving cross-border disputes is still key. The number one reason why parties are choosing arbitration in cross-border context is enforceability. The presumption that arbitral awards are enforceable with limited ground for challenge under the New York Convention is really what drives the preference of arbitration rather than litigation around the world. If there was a comfort of parties going into the courts of their counterparties, that could shift but we are not seeing that. So I think as we see continued awareness and training and of all the stakeholders in the value proposition of international arbitration, we're going to continue to see that. Of course, we have seen challenges to international business more generally. We have seen uh, nationalism. We have seen ebbs and flows of international trade in recent times. And so that's obviously an element challenging cross-border dispute resolution. Of course, parties are very focused on time and costs. This focus is a concern for small and medium-sized enterprises. This is a focus for multinational companies. This is a focus for states. We also know that it's a focus for even big companies that have very small matters. And so one of the key aspects from our perspective is the ways in which uh, our expedited procedures, which now have were adopted in 2017, and we've seen now 500 of these cases as a real success to have awards within six months. We know parties 
are even opting in to these procedures, uh, even with high amounts in dispute. So the question is, and the most important challenge is, are there going to be needs for even faster dispute resolution processes? Is there going to be a need for processes where there is more integration of amicable dispute resolution with uh, potential arbitration? That is all the aspects that we have to look at as we're looking to shape uh, dispute resolution and prevention for the future. Great. Well, exciting times ahead. Our listeners can't see you, Claudia, but I will share with them just the joy that you radiate as you talk about the ICC and this um, centenary year for it. And, and that, uh, that joy is contagious. So thank you very much indeed for spending time with us. We're very grateful. And I, I should mention as well for our listeners that this is the third time that Claudia has appeared on Arbitral Insights. Um, Claudia joined us in December 2020 with my New York partner, JP Duffy. And then in June of 2021, with the then global chair of our um, Reed Smith International Arbitration Practice, Jose Astigaraga. And um, all three episodes are available on Reed Smith's Arbitral Insights podcast library, and they make for great listening. So do look them up if you haven't already. Uh, Claudia, very warm thank you for um, spending this time with us and for sharing with us um, some of these sort of really important projects ahead for the, the ICC. Thank you very much. And thank you so much. A real pleasure to be here. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, readsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Readsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.